Just before I hand it back to Catchin, we're going to read together the words that are on the screen, passages from Luke and from Matthew. This is Luke chapter 1, second half of verse 13 through to verse 17. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, this is to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then jump over to Matthew, or jump back actually to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Father God, we ask your blessing upon these words upon Catch as she comes to share with us. Give us ears to hear your words for us and bless and anoint Catch as she shares with us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I wonder if any of you watch um, talent shows, Britain's Got Talent, those kind of things, Strictly Come Dancing. I know, obviously, that's popular in our household. You might have known that from previous years. So quite often, on those talent shows, there's a backstory, isn't there? It's quite often known as a tragic backstory in our household because uh, usually on those talent shows, it's somebody who's overcome some enormous adversity or another to be able to get to, to the point that they're at. So I thought this morning, before we get into... Um, the main message, we'd have a little bit of John the Baptist's backstory. 
um, which is why I asked Stuart to read that first passage from Luke. And this one isn't a tragic backstory, although the one of his parents, you, you could say, was uh, one of adversity because they didn't uh, have him until much later in life. And so I just wanted to pick out a few bits, um, a few verses from uh, that passage in Luke um, and help us to think about the backstory of John the Baptist before we get into him, the man with a message. So first of all, uh, verse 13, that end bit of verse 13, we read that he was an answer to his parents' prayers. It says, um, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. I wonder how many of us would say that our children are an answer to our prayers. I hope that we would, but I just thought that that was an interesting thing to pick out. He was an answer to his parents' prayers. Um, he was chosen. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. It said even before he was born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit for a specific role and an anointing to carry out that role from God. He was known as being great in the sight of the Lord. He would be filled with the Spirit. It said that he would bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, would go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he had this really specific job that God wanted him to do. And then finally, it says that he would make ready, make people ready and prepared for the Lord. Um, the end of verse 17 there, it said that he would uh, turn the hearts of, their parents, of the parents to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. I often wonder if that's linked, hearts of children to parents, disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Maybe not. And make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So those were... Just three things that I thought gave us a flavour of what was spoken about John the Baptist even before he was born. This is who this man is. An answer to his parents' prayers. Filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Chosen for a specific role to make people ready and prepared for the Lord. And sometimes I have to confess, I'm a little bit wary. You know when Christian parents say things like, they have certain expectations of their children. So they say, oh, my son or my daughter is going to do this thing or that thing. Um, or they're, you know, they're going to carry a particular calling or message from God. Um, and I think sometimes that you can put pressure on children or young people by doing that. But actually, here we find John the Baptist's parents are being told specifically that John has been chosen by God for a particular message, that his role is one of great importance and that God will equip him to do it. And I think God knew that he needed to make it really clear to John's parents what John was to be like how they were to bring him up, what he would be called to do. There's no room for second guessing, is there, in that message that we read from Luke, wondering what it would be like for John. Um, I guess when he comes to something as important as announcing the Messiah, you have to know that you've got it right. And so it's to that timeless announcement that we're going to turn our attention this morning, that proclamation that John made in Matthew 3 in the second passage that we read. And to do this, we're kind of pressing fast forward. If you imagine we're watching a DVD or a video, we're pressing fast forward in the story. So we've gone past the nativity. Jesus and John have grown up and we've gone all the way into their adult lives of John the Baptist and his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And uh, on reading Tom Wright's commentary on Matthew uh, in preparation for this, I, I've discovered that he helpfully picks out some imagery, the imagery that's already there, really, in the passage, uh, in John's message. And he uses these single nouns to kind of summarise what it is that we read. And so we're going to use this imagery today to help us to understand the message of John the Baptist. He talks about the road. And the kids have got an opportunity to make a road this morning, actually. I don't know whether they've done it or not. There's a big bit of cardboard down there, so you can look at that later if you want to. The road, the water, the axe, and the fire. So it's those images that we're going to kind of hang our points on this morning. And really, um, John started with this idea of, even before we get to the road of repentance, Matthew 3, verse the end of verse 2 says... We hear John saying, rather, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And I think to understand the word repentance, it's a bit of a, um, an old-fashioned word. It's a bit of a church word. We don't necessarily use it outside of this context. We have to do a bit of digging under the surface. Um, and so I did a bit of digging under the surface. And um, some of you will know that the Greek word that's used in this context, in this particular passage, is the word metanoia, and it's used in other places as well. And it's accurately translated, I think, as repentance. But then quite often it's unpacked as the idea of us changing our minds um, about our kind of direction of travel, if you like, away from God. But I don't know about you, I change my mind all the time about stuff. Will I, have, will I cook spaghetti bolognese for tea or will I cook a curry? Will I um, do the hoovering now or will I do it later or will I ask someone else to do it for me? You know, I change my mind about that stuff all the time. And so I kind of think that changing your mind about something seems a bit too ordinary for something as serious as repentance. I kind of think that there must be a better way to explain this idea of metanoia or repentance. Other people have realized that as well. And so they talk about changing our hearts Um, and, you know, changing those around in some way, changing the direction of our hearts. But again, I think that could be a bit flimsy, a bit fickle, you know, a little bit like a teenager who says, oh, well, I like this person one minute, but then I like that person the next minute. It kind of doesn't seem enough, really, to just say that changing our hearts or changing our minds is big enough for anything to do with something as serious as sin and the state of humans before God, anything as serious as repentance. So I think metanoia or repentance kind of conveys this idea that we don't just simply intend to think or to feel differently, but we actually come to be someone else entirely. Because how we live And what we believe, especially about ourselves or about God, is central to our identity, isn't it? It's central to who we are as a person. And metanoia, or repentance, that John talks about, are about experiencing a transformation of being. It's a whole renovation of our personal ethos. Who we are as a person is transformed because of repentance. And I think so often as Christians, and especially if we've been Christians for a long time, we can be like this. We can think that repentance is something for other people. It's something that we did a long time ago, um, and we don't really need to do that anymore. You know, it's not for those of us who are already saved, but actually we're kidding ourselves if we have made the decision already to be a Christian. We're kidding ourselves if we think we don't need to repent anymore. Or maybe worse still, 
1 John 1.8 tells us that we're actually lying to ourselves if we think we're exempt from repenting. And, uh, you know, we've got to admit the sin in our lives. We've got to admit that we, we get stuff wrong and that we uh, try and rely on ourselves and our own way of doing things. And going through repentance, this whole change of mind, heart and being is the way that we have to go, as John called out in the desert there. So then that got me thinking, well, what leads us to repentance? Is it just because John said in the desert a few thousand years ago, repent? Is it just because of that? Is it just because we're told to? Well, probably not. There was a time when I think, I used to think that my guilt was what led me to repentance. You know, if I feel bad about something, then I say sorry about it. It's what we teach small children, isn't it? You know, say sorry to your sibling that you've just clattered around the head with a toy or whatever it is. And I used to think that it's only when I feel guilty that I need to say sorry to God and promise him that I'll never go there again. And I don't think that's a bad place to start. But what about the stuff that we don't feel guilty about? Where does that fit if repentance is just about feeling guilty and they say, then saying sorry? And I think this is where we need God and his Holy Spirit to step in and help us out. I've been reading Romans since the summer, and I'm reading it really, really slowly. Um, and I think I've got to about chapter 12 now. But I can't get out of chapter 2 and verse 4. It says this. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness that leads, leads us to repentance. I don't know how you feel when someone points out that you do something wrong. When someone says, oh, you shouldn't have done it that way. You should have done it this way. I know that in me, it provokes quite a reaction. If I'm honest, it really irritates me. I go a bit red and my stomach tightens and I start to feel myself clenching my fists a little bit maybe. You know those kind of really irritating people that love to tell you when you've got stuff wrong. Well, here it tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that shows us that we've got something wrong. Quite often we think to ourselves when someone tells us we've got something wrong, well, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. I didn't know. I didn't understand what, I did, what I'd done wrong. But somehow, I think when we read this verse in Romans about God's kindness, it gives us a new perspective on what it means to repent, a new perspective to realize that we're facing the wrong direction, that our hearts are facing the wrong direction, that our beings are pointing out the wrong way. And God kindly points out where we're going wrong. He's, there's no malice in it. There's no um, sense of one-upmanship that you might get from another human being or criticism or harsh treatment. I think it's just the prompting, gentle prompting of a loving, loving heavenly father to see that we're not in alignment with his will. And when I noticed this, I thought, that is stunningly beautiful, isn't it? That although we are kind of inclined as humans to finger wag and point out one another's faults, actually, God does it with kindness. And he shows us where things are going wrong, and he helps us to repent. And I, this is where we come to these images of John's message. So John describes this repentance or the need for it as making straight paths. So this is the road. Uh, it said, he says, make straight paths for him. So make straight paths for Jesus to come. 
And quite often we want the road to look like this, don't we, you know? A beautiful, pristine image, nice and white and clean, just some simple lines down the middle marking the way, you know, nothing untidy. Uh, but more often, the road of our lives looks like that. So that is the view out of mine and Dan's bedroom window currently. Uh, it's not very clear, but there is actually a street between those two houses. So if you look beyond the yellow fencing, um, that's a street down there. It's got bricks on it. It's got mud on it. So much mud at Marley at the moment. And quite often, I think the roads of our lives look like that road. They're just full of clutter and debris. I had this um, weird moment a few months back uh, when I was praying and I was looking out of that window, actually not at that road, but at a different one, slightly to one side. Um, and I, this is the note that I wrote to myself on my phone. It says, the builders are constructing a new road opposite the front of our house. And I sense God saying to me, look at that unmade road. Go and observe it. See how it's made and make note of the process. So I noted the process and the progress. And I noticed that there was lots of digging. I could hear lots of digging. Lots of really hard scraping of the ground. Very little progress seemed to be made. It was tough work. It required special machines. They were laying the curbstones for the path. And they were being really precise about it, very careful. But there was a lack of completion there. It was an ongoing process. They were just positioning them. They were measuring. There was markers out obviously in specific places, to make it safe. And I kind of felt like God was trying to show me something in this road that I was looking at. He was trying to show me, I think, that making the straight road for Jesus to walk on in our lives takes effort. It takes time. It takes precision. It takes expertise. But the good news is that whilst it's our job to repent, whilst it's our job to change uh, um, our direction like that. It's not our job to break the ground of our hardened hearts so that the way can be made clear. That's the job of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we draw close to God, as we allow our reading of scripture to shape us, God gently, with kindness, again, remember, shows us what needs digging up before the new road can be laid. And once we see what needs to come out, um, you know, the mess and the rubble, or the stuff that's just been left lying on the top, then we can confess and allow God to bring those things into the light of his presence. Those who came to John in the wilderness, it says, they confessed their sins. They were confessing their sins before him. And I imagine that they felt a great weight lifted from their shoulders, didn't they? You know, uh, they'd set, they told someone all of the terrible things that they'd ever done wrong or the attitudes of their hearts that had been wrong. Maybe they felt just like we did when we first put our tr trust in Jesus for the first time. But then that led me to think that repentance can't just be about feeling better, can it? It can't just be about your shoulders feeling a little bit lighter. It can't just be about clearing your conscience and feeling good. So I thought about what repentance leads to. And 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 tells us that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Salvation is what comes from repentance. It's another way to just say that God rescues us. He rescues us in all sorts of different ways, doesn't he? Ultimately, 
He's rescuing us and saving us from our sin, from those things that we've done wrong, so that we can be in relationship with him. But we only need to read the New Testament for a few minutes to see that it's just much more about just going to heaven when we die. God's making the things that are a mess in our lives now better. Through salvation, he's healing those things in our lives which hurt us. Through salvation, he's giving back those things that are lost from our lives, those things that are missing from our lives. Jesus talked about this as the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God. He taught us to pray, didn't he? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Salvation is God's ultimate purpose for us as image bearers of God, as those who reflect God into the world and then our praises back to God himself. And as we're saved, God creates within us and all of creation a place where heaven and earth overlap, a place where heaven and earth meet and interlock together, where God dwells with his people, Emmanuel comes which is what God, uh, G, um, John was pointing forward to. And in living our lives as saved people, as people who've received salvation from God, we experience his freedom. That's something else that comes from repentance, freedom. If you read Ephesians 5, it talks all about freedom. Freedom that comes about by not living under the law, but life in the spirit. But also freedom from the flesh, which is basically freedom from sin, freedom from um, doing those wrong things, but also having that wrong attitude of heart away from God. Freedom that can only come about as we repent and we confess our sins to God. Ephesians 5 verse 13 tells us, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Repentance brings us salvation, brings us freedom to live as God intended us to, loving and serving one another, not ourselves. And John the Baptist, in his kind of moment of ministry and mission in the the wilderness there, he offered this symbolic expression of that freedom with our next image, which is the water. It says that they were baptized by him in the River Jordan. And for most of us, Fairly early on in our journey of faith with Jesus, we've had the opportunity to mark our repentance through the waters of baptism. Some of you have even done it in the water that would have been under my feet where I'm standing right now. And it's a command, isn't it? It's not an invitation. It's a command to be baptized. And that's what John was saying, to repent and be baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, can I encourage you to talk to either Stuart or I about it in the next You know, days, weeks, months, not yet, because it's too cold at this time of the year. But let's talk about it further if you haven't done that. And uh, we needn't think we're off the hook, those of us that have been baptised. Because actually, I I wouldn't advocate going through waters of baptism more than once. Robin and I had a conversation about this the other day. He was telling me about someone that thought that that was a good idea. And I wouldn't say that you should do that. But I would say it's a good idea to regularly revisit in your mind and in your heart what led you to that point of being baptised. What led you to that point of making that commitment before God and other believers. You see, all too often we want the water to look like that. Just a nice little cartoon pool of water, you know, freely flowing, clean. 
but often the water looks more like that. I don't know how clear that picture is. The water of our lives quite often looks like that. Those are, that's the pond in Mali, in case you're wondering. Gregory Park Pond. Uh, and uh, it's muddy at the moment. There's lots of weeds growing. I mean, there are meant to be kind of weeds there. It's, you know, it's sort of meant to be a, you know, an environmental place. But there's even a, a, a family of ducks who've taken up residence. I wonder about the water of your life and my life. Is there, is there a lot of mud and weeds? Is there a family of ducks who've taken up residence? You don't quite know how they got there, but suddenly they've landed and you sort of know that they shouldn't be there. And that's why the next image reminder, the axe that we'll come to in a moment, is so important. But before we get to it, I want to remind us <coughs> of the, uh, the freedom that repentance brings. I already talked a little bit about Ephesians 5. Because John the Baptist gave this warning to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they came towards him. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And if you look at Ephesians 5, it talks about fruit that um, is in keeping with repentance. It talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Just listen to the words that it uses to describe that fruit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when we're living this life of regular repentance and confession, keeping short accounts with God and with others, then we can expect to see evidence of this kind of fruit in our lives, not mud and weeds and a resident family of ducks that shouldn't be there. So that's why we need to move on to our next image the axe. Verse 10 says, um, the axe has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit, that fruit in keeping with repentance, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Heavy words. It's possible to tell whether I or you or anybody else is taking this message of repentance seriously. We just need to look at the fruit in our lives. Is it the fruit of God's righteousness? Is it those things that I've described from Ephesians 5? Or is it something else? And we need to know that if it isn't the case, that it's those, that fruit, if we're not allowing God's kindness to lead us to repentance, then we can expect some pruning. And it's with an axe, not just a little pair of kitchen scissors. And so, you know, we can expect it to, to, to mean something. Because we want the axe to look like that, don't we? Or even better, we want the axe to be like one of those foam things that you buy in a gift shop for a kid. You know, have you ever seen those? Like, you can get foam swords and foam axes. We'd quite like the axe to be like that. But actually, it's not. It's that. You know? We want it to be basic and clinical and not particularly fierce looking. But I think that if we don't allow God's kindness to lead us to repentance, then this pruning is not going to be very comfortable. I don't want to sugarcoat the message. John was quite stark in his warning that he gave to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and I think it can apply to us as well. Those of us who've been in church all our lives particularly, we can't think that we can just rely on the faith of our parents or what has gone before just because we served in this way or did this thing or said that thing or we've been a member for X number of years. None of that will count for anything when the axe needs to fall. 
even if we've done all those things and said all those right things, been in all those religious places, if we've done that with unrepentant hearts, with no desire to allow God to align our will with his, then we can expect the axe to fall hard and deep. And I think it's better to crack on now, asking God to kindly show us where he needs to break in and change us, than to wait until all is said and done and end up with a whole branch of our lives lopped right off, or even worse, cut right at the base of the tree. So I wonder what happens when all that space is cleared, when the road um, is made clear, when the, the, the clearing is done, the axe has done its work, when the road is made straight, when we repent. Well, then the fire comes, John says. He said that the one coming, so Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He foretold of this one who would come after him, the one whose advent we are currently eagerly awaiting. Jesus, who would come as a tiny baby at Bethlehem to be one of us, to take on himself all of the sins that we have ever committed, to take upon himself the schism, the division of a fallen world and its God and then to die in it, to rise to life in it, so that we can be in relationship with him now and for all eternity. This is the Jesus that we come to daily. And we think that his fire is like that, but you've guessed by now where I'm going. Actually, it's more like that. It's fire that really burns. It's fire that really clears up the dross. It's fire that um, gives us passion for him. Being filled with his spirit, refined by his fire, means that we're made holy because he's holy as we surrender our lives fully to him. At the beginning, we talked about the fact that John the Baptist's message is one for all of us today, even though it's thousands of years old. And I wonder where we fall in those images. Maybe not in any of them at all. Maybe in more, of one of, more than one of them. I wonder whether we need to repent or confess and allow God to make the road straight. I wonder whether we need the water of baptism or maybe we need to regularly take up that habit of reminding ourselves of that moment of baptism, submitting to the work of God in our lives. Maybe we need to allow God to take an axe to some parts of our lives to clear out some of the rubbish. Or maybe the reminder of the axe to point us back to the kindness of God, which leads us to repentance. Or perhaps we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we've just gone a bit dull and dry. And we need that passion of being set on fire for Jesus again. Refined, living radically for him wherever he places us. Whichever of those messages is for you this morning, then in a moment we're going to pray. Before we do that, we're going to sing um, This Is Our God. And we're going to sing the words, Your grace is enough. I am restored. I am redeemed. By your spirit, I am free. This is the message of repentance which leads to salvation that John preached. But I wonder, do you believe it? Will you sing it with certainty? Will you sing with certainty, your grace is enough? Will you sing with certainty, I am restored?
Will you sing with certainty, I am redeemed? Will you sing by your spirit, I am free, knowing for certain that it's true for your life? Let's pray together.